Well, I am so pleased to uh, introduce Kyle Taft to us tonight. Many of you have already met Kyle and his family already, um, but I'm just really excited to have him coming and preaching here in our evening service. Kyle is a friend, and uh, I met him about two years ago as we partnered in some local um, ministry um, together. We've been on little mini road trips down to the seminary for conferences together and and discussed church and theology and ministry along the way. We've uh, partnered for many uh, fellowship meals together and got to know each other, and and I'm so thankful to have him um, and his wife here, Amy, and uh, his son, John John Marr, and we just want to welcome him to preach the word to us. For those of you who didn't know, Kyle recently is a newly minted New Testament PhD, and so he is a doctor preaching in the New Testament, so we will refer to him as Dr. Kyle Taft, Uh, and also, for those of you who didn't know, he is also uh, mine and and Pastor Wood's fantasy football commissioner as he uh, hosted a local uh, ministry pastoral fellowship, if you will, uh, playing some, uh, playing a silly game together. But let's welcome Kyle Taft, commissioner and doctor, to the pulpit this evening. What he didn't say was that this year, unfortunately, the Methodist pastor put us all to shame. He won the league, so... Uh, First off, I do want to thank Daniel and Wood and the deacons here for allowing me to preach tonight. It does take a lot of trust to allow someone to fill the pulpit, because I might have some weird theological ideas. I might just be plain old boring, or I could be, you know, a Chargers fan. So it takes a lot of trust to, to allow me to speak here. So I understand that trust, and I hope that I earn that trust tonight. But more importantly than earning your guys' trust, I want to be a faithful servant of our Lord and Savior. And so I ask that you pray with me as we get ready to examine the word. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, last week I was eating a great spaghetti dinner that the youth put on and talking with Daniel about what to preach, and he challenged me to preach a genealogy. Now, he was joking, but I took up the challenge anyway. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. And Daniel told me that he preached this about a year ago in the Christmas season. And, but he also said that you guys probably have forgotten what he said. So I'm holding him to that. And we'll just start from the beginning in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amminadab, and Amminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers, 
about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiud, and Abiad begot Eliakim. Eliakim begot Azor, Azor begot Zadok, and Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Nathan, and Nathan begot Jacob. Now, are you guys paying attention? I don't want to try to read this twice. Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. So are all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. The word of the Lord. Now, during the Protestant Reformation, the city of Geneva, Switzerland, adopted the motto, Post Tenabras Lux, which is the title for the sermon tonight, Post Tenabras Lux, on their coins to show their support for the movement, for the the Protestant Reformation, to show their support for John Calvin. Post Tenabras Lux means after darkness, light. After the darkness and corruption of the Catholic Church at that time, the Reformation brought light to people who could finally understand the real gospel for the first time. Now, this year may have been a dark year for you. You may have had family struggles, financial struggles, or struggles on the job. Maybe you lost a friend. My family faced a tough year last year. Some of you may know I got fired last year. So I understand. I understand feeling like you're in the dark. And the Jewish people of the time that Matthew was writing in would have understood this as well. Like Ukraine and Russia today, the nation of Israel was a small nation that had been occupied by a great big nation known as the Roman Empire. And the last prophet from God, Malachi, had come about 400 years ago. For 400 years, it seemed that God had been silent. So the Jewish people felt like they were in the dark. And perhaps you, like the Jews, have been wondering where God is in your life. When will he speak again? When will he finally show up? If that's the case, this genealogy is for you. Because the motto of the Reformation, after darkness, light, is exactly what this passage wants us to understand. And verse 1 is the interpretive key. If you go back to verse 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, the word genealogy in the Greek is the word Genesis, just like the first book of the Bible. And Genesis itself means something like origins. So this book is all about the origins of Jesus Christ. And that's significant because in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, it says, this is the book of the origin of heaven and earth. And the Jewish people would have immediately made this connection. Genesis is the origin of heaven and earth, Matthew is the origin of Jesus Christ. They would realize that what Matthew was saying was that the story of Jesus Christ is the story of a brand new beginning, the dawn of a new age, a light after darkness. And so Matthew gives us an outline of the genealogy, a summary in that first verse. He says, Jesus Christ is the son of David, and he is the son of Abraham. And this evening, I want to look at those two sonships. And I think they offer two distinct new beginnings for us, two lights in the darkness. 
So let's jump right in with the first term. Jesus Christ is the son of David. And in order to understand the significance of that, we need to jump around in the genealogy a little bit and go to the end of the genealogy in verse 17, where it says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Now, most genealogies actually do skip generations. The word begat doesn't necessarily mean gave birth to or fathered, but it means something like was a descendant of. It was fairly common to skip generations, to focus on the important people in the story, or to simply condense the genealogy so it would be easier to remember. So we don't have a complete list of people here, but it's still a very impressive list. Now, back in verse 17, it says 14 generations in each time period. Well, why 14 generations? Why not 12, like the 12 tribes of Israel, or a nice round number like 10? Why 14? Well, there are a couple of significant reasons. One is that 14 is twice 7, and 7 is a nice biblical number. It represents completion. It represents perfection. Another is that in Jewish tradition, there's this practice called gematria. It assigns values, numerical values, to letters, and so every person's name had a number associated with it. So here are some values that I'm just going to throw out. The letter called Dalet, which is kind of like our D, has a value of four. The letter Vav, which is kind of like a W or a V, has the value of six. Now, why is that important? Remember that in Hebrew writing, originally there were no vowels. So the name David is DVD. So D, which is four, plus V, which is six, plus D, which is four again, you get 14. And where is David listed in this genealogy? He's listed 14th. So David has a great deal of significance in this genealogy, and we hear about him in verse six. It says, Jesse, the father of David, the king. David was the king. And since Matthew is tracing the royal line, when we get down to Jesus, we see that Jesus is the true king of Israel. He is the inheritor of the Davidic promises. So what are the promises that God gives to David? What are those Davidic promises? Turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 11. 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 11. This is what God told David. The Lord declares to you, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him, with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, who I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That is an incredible promise. Your throne shall be established 
forever. But there's an issue with that promise, and the genealogy points to it and emphasizes it. (laughs) David had Solomon. Solomon had Rehoboam. Abijah, Asaph, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Amos, and then Josiah. For 14 generations, David's dynasty stood, and the promise seemed true. But then we get Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. This might seem like an interesting historical marker to us, but the deportation to Babylon was a crisis for the Jewish people. The people were in exile. There was no longer a king on the throne of David, but God had promised that a king would reign forever. And now all the supports of Israel's faith had been threatened and eliminated. The monarchy, the land, even the temple. And while historically the exile lasted only 70 years to the time of the rededication of the temple, many taught that the era of the exile could not really end until the dawn of the Messianic age. Think of the words of the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It says, Ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until, until the Son of God appears. The exile meant that the promises to David were not being fulfilled, and they could not be until the end of that age when the Messiah came. And so it seems like God's promises have failed. And as long as the Jews are under the control of yet another foreign nation, the mighty Roman Empire, it's a dark time. But then Matthew continues, and there are 14 generations from Jeconiah to the coming of this man, Jesus Christ. This Jesus who had a legal claim to the throne of David. This Jesus who could inherit the promises of David. This Jesus whose very name means Yahweh saves. This Jesus who is called the Christ, the anointed, just like David was anointed to be king. This Jesus was the Messiah. The exile was over and God's promises had not failed. Jesus was the one in whom the Jews could find, and we can find today, new hope. He was the light in their darkness. Matthew was saying the Jews could hope again because the Messiah had come. He was the son of David and he was proof that God had not abandoned them. What was done in exile would be undone by Jesus. That's why again, O come, O come, Emmanuel says, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. Emmanuel has come to thee, O Israel. (coughs) See, as the Jewish audience listened to this genealogy, they wouldn't hear just names like we hear sometimes. They hear names, but it also touched their hearts because it stirred up their memories, because they grew up with these stories. They probably heard names like Abraham and Isaac and thought about how bleak it was for Abraham, who was old and childless, wondering how God could ever possibly fulfill that promise. And yet the child of promise came in Isaac. Or of Hezekiah, when he was surrounded by the Assyrian army, wondering where God is. And then God sent his angel to defeat the army. Or even Josiah, whose grandfather was Manasseh, the most wicked and cruel and evil king Israel ever had. How could the nation be set right after such a person? Well, through this young boy who rediscovered the law and tried to reform and put Israel right. 
again and again and again and again. The people would hear these names and remember the stories of how God worked in darkness, no matter how dark. How each time they were facing darkness, God brought light. To put it like Samwise Gamgee from The Lord of the Rings, when he asked, is everything sad going to come untrue? The answer is yes. Yes and amen. Yes, yes and amen. See, for us today, because Jesus is the son of David, we have a new hope. Because Jesus is the son of David, we can trust that God will act in our lives as well. When we are facing whatever darkness may come, we can know that God will bring the light. He will see us through. Post to Navras, Luke's, after darkness, light. No, I'm not saying that if you're facing financial difficulties, you're going to magically win the lottery. I'm not saying if you get fired, you'll immediately find another job that pays better and has better hours. And I'm not saying that if you're going through family turmoil, that it can be instantly solved. In fact, none of that, none of the world will be perfectly set right until Jesus comes again, until the dwelling of God is once again with his people and he lives with them and they are his people and he is their God and he wipes away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death and mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things has passed away. Until that time, not everything will be set right. But what the motto post tenabras Luke's after the darkness, light, means for us today is that we can agree with David when he says in Psalm 27, I am confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We might have to wait until Jesus comes back for everything to be perfect, but we don't have to wait until the second coming to see God at work in our lives. We can trust his promises now. We can trust that in all things, God works for good of those who love him. We can trust that he is with us to the very end of the age. We can trust that neither death nor life nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can trust and we can hope precisely because Jesus is the son of David. But what about that second term? Why does it matter that Jesus is also the son of Abraham? Well, Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, records God's promise to Abraham. (laughs) Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will dishonor those you curse. And in you, all the families on earth shall be blessed. Now back in the genealogy, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 2, we hear Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. And three generations in, and so far, the only family on earth that has been blessed is actually Abraham's family, not all the families on earth. So that promise is not yet fulfilled. But once again, in this genealogy, we can see that God fulfills his promises. In fact, in the very next verse, we read, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. 
Now, it's odd to see a woman mentioned in the genealogy because the inheritance goes through the father. But Tamar isn't just a woman. She is a Gentile woman. She's a Canaanite. And then when we skip down to verse 5, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. And Rahab wasn't an Israelite either. She was from Jericho. And that verse goes on. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Ruth, like we heard this morning, was a Moabitess. She wasn't an Israelite either. And then in verse 6, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. She doesn't even get named, but we know the name, Bathsheba, the Hittite. Four women mentioned outside of Mary. None of the four are Jewish. Matthew is using this genealogy to show that Jesus Christ's kingdom is for all people, not just the Jews. He's saying that the promise to Abraham as well has been fulfilled. All families on earth are blessed because of Jesus. Hittites, Moabites, Jerichoans, all people are blessed. But there's more to this story because Ruth spent the night on the threshing floor before she was married to Boaz. Rahab was a prostitute. Tamar enticed her father-in-law into an incestuous relationship. These are not good people. These are not people that we should look up to. Why mention those women? Why not mention women like Sarah, Rebecca, Leah? Well, I like the quote from my ESV study Bible. This lineage is comprised of men, women, adulterers, prostitutes, heroes, and Gentiles, and Jesus will be Savior of all. And we don't need to pick on just the women. There was Jacob, the liar and the deceiver. There was David, the murderer and the adulterer. The genealogy is filled with wicked kings, with sinners. God uses strange and unexpected people in working out his plan as he prepared for the coming of the Messiah. I like the way one author put it. They say, Jesus' genealogy is dripping with God's mercy. Dripping with God's mercy. The genealogy shows that it doesn't matter who your family is or what you've done. Some names are reassuring and heroic. Others are familiar for all the wrong reasons, and some are actually even alarming. How could God use someone like that? But they all have a place in the line of Jesus. The fulfillment of Abraham's promise comes through Jesus, because in him all people, every family on earth, can be saved, can receive God's favor, can receive his blessing. Because Jesus is the son of Abraham, we are a new people of God. Because Jesus is a true Jew, a son of Abraham, an inheritor of the promise to Abraham, we are all accepted as people of God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. We belong to God exactly because of what Christ did on the cross. We belong to God because Christ, the one who inherited the promises to Abraham, died for us. And Jesus transforms our lives. Think about those women again. Rahab was a prostitute, but she was faithful to Israel at the cost of her own city. Ruth was a Moabitess, but chose Israel over her own people. And the fifth woman on the list, Mary. 
who could be known as a fornicator for having a child before she was married, is instead known and celebrated as the mother of the Messiah. Jesus does the same for us. He gives us a new beginning, a fresh start. Because of him, we have a new hope and we are a new people. Imagine with me for a moment, or maybe you don't have to imagine, maybe you've experienced this already. You're a young child and you move to a new school. And maybe the school is someplace like Gallatin, a small town where other kids have known each other for years and years. They become fast friends and form their own groups. Now it's time for you to find your place to sit in the cafeteria. And none of the other kids are inviting you into their group. They're all excluding you and you have no place to sit. Or maybe you're a Croatian in the former Yugoslavia where the predominant opinion is you should apologize for your ethnicity. Maybe a Kurd in Iraq or a Russian speaking Ukrainian today. You have no place on the map. You have no place at the table. And now imagine that a child finally invites you to join their table. Imagine your joy when Croatia finally becomes a nation, when you no longer are without a land to call your own. Wouldn't you give up everything for that nation? Wouldn't that child that first offered you a place to sit become your closest friend? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says this, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And how great is that mercy. So because Jesus is the son of David, we know that God fulfills his promises and we can hope. And because he is the son of Abraham, we know that he has mercy on all people, no matter what race, no matter how awful their past. Because he is the son of Abraham, we too have a place at his table. And all that from a genealogy. Aren't genealogies important after all? We might skip them, think they're tedious, think they're boring, but they're an integral part of the story. But there's one more point that we need to recognize about this genealogy, one more piece of light that we need to see. Not only does it give us hope and transform us into a new people, but it establishes the story in history. See, God cares about truth. The genealogy shows that the gospel is grounded in history. Because Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham, we know that the gospel is grounded in history. We know that Jesus is a historical person, and the gospel includes this genealogy, warts and all. It doesn't try to hide anything. It's not trying to deceive us. It's not embarrassed by what happened. Our faith is established in verifiable events. And more than that, not only is the gospel grounded in history, but it shows that God is in control of history. Even when it looks like the throne of David is gone forever, God has a bigger plan. Even when the very people of God are the ones acting so horrendously, God has a bigger plan. Even when Putin has the nuclear armada on high alert, God has a plan. God is in control. In fact, an American pastor who lives and serves in Belarus states this, quite a number of soldiers are saying strange things are happening. 
Sometimes bullets are just passing by us instead of hitting us. Now the bullets should be hitting them, but they're just plain old missing. And no wood, the Russian soldiers are not imperial stormtroopers. They're trained, they should be hitting their targets. The pastor says that these people understand that this is going to be a hard time for everyone. This is war, of course it's going to be hard, it's going to be awful. But he also says that the people there know, they believe that a time is coming that will be a good time. And why will it be a good time? Why do the people think a good time is coming? Because they believe God's spirit is about to move in incredible ways. Post-Tenabras, Luke's. After darkness, light. What this genealogy tells us is that even after the people of God appear as the worst kinds of sinners, murderers, adulterers, and more, and even after God's chosen nation is conquered by the wicked, cruel, and violent people, good is on its way. God used a lineage of all sorts of people, even wicked people, even wicked nations, to bring about the Messiah. And again, go back to chapter 1, verse 17, that Matthew numbers the periods of time, the three sets of 14, is a hint that God has ordered history. It may seem chaotic. It may seem dark for the people in exile, but God brings order to chaos. He is faithful despite the chaos. He conquers the chaos and darkness of our lives. And we get that fresh start, that new beginning in Jesus Christ. We get the good news of the gospel. We get a Savior who dies for us and for our sins, and yet whom the grave cannot hold. We get a Savior who died for us, but is alive and is returning to bring us all into his kingdom. And so you can hope. You can hope in Jesus Christ. You can hope in Jesus Christ, the Emmanuel, the God with us. You can know that God has not abandoned you after all. You can know that he fulfills his promises. And you can know, post-Tenabras, Luke's, after the darkness, light. When Jesus got up and preached his first sermon ever, this is what he proclaimed in Matthew chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. Land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness, have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And all that, from a genealogy we often overlook, post-Tenabras Luke's, a light has dawned, and praise be to God. Will you pray with me? O Lord, you shine into our darkness, and you give us peace. You take our messed up lives and make something beautiful out of them. With gratitude, we praise you, and we ask that you guide our lives as we try to live them for you. Guide us out of the darknesses that we face and into your light. And we say this in your son's name, Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Amen. you and you had mentioned tough times and wouldn't I love you so much we just want to pray for you and your family thank you for feeding us with the word just now what a hearty meal this evening part two we got some Ruth earlier this morning from Scott and then uh, to get the genealogy here and those connections and that that wonderful exposition of 
of a tough tax. I was joking when I said <laughs> genealogy, but you took me up for it in that joke, and you fed us so well. I'm so encouraged. Thank you, brother. Would you just pray for, for the family and, sure. and God's encouragement through that? Yeah. Heavenly Father, I do want to thank you for Kyle and for Amy and Lord as they have been going through some difficult times. I do thank you that they've been open to being used by you as they come here to minister to us through Kyle's preaching of the word and then coming and sitting under the word and becoming friends and fellowships as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and encouraging the body through their friendship. Lord, I ask that you just continue to encourage Kyle and Amy that you are not done with them, that you are still using them in this area and you're still using them as Kyle goes down and does his ministry in independence, and as Amy does her counseling, and the friendships they have with their neighbors and other people here in this town, Lord. I do thank you for their friendship that they have with Ashley and I and Daniel and Stacy, many other people in this congregation, Lord. And just continue to be with Kyle and Amy. Continue the strength of them, and help us to commit to remember that when there's darkness, then comes the light. And as you brought the greatest light to us mm-hmm. through your salvation, Lord, let that light shine to this dark world. And thank you again for this brother and his encouraging and faithful preaching of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Go, son.